Coming up, Cybercast Oregon, a podcast about the ins and outs of technology security, explored through personal stories, how-to guides, and expert advice. Today's show, debating the pros and cons of cloud computing systems as a solution to cyber threats. Companies and individuals alike are moving in growing numbers to cloud storage systems. There are plenty of obvious benefits, efficiency, computing power, and interconnectivity, to name a few. But whenever we're dealing with data, that most precious of online commodities, we have to ask ourselves, are the platforms we're using defensible against cyber attacks? And when it comes to systems and platforms, are we safer in the cloud or more vulnerable to hacks? Great questions, and we have answers. This is Cybercast Oregon on Portland Radio Project. Cybercast Oregon, and I'm your host, Kedma O. Oh. I am lead director for our cybersecurity for small businesses through the Small Business Development Center and based at Mount Hood Community College. Cybersecurity is a constant back and forth of defense versus attacks. For every safety upgrade, there's a fresh host of cyber threats on the market. One area that's a hotbed is the cybersecurity war cloud computing services. On today's episode, we're going to ask if cloud services are something we can trust and if these virtual environments might be our answer to hack-proofing our digital lives. Let me welcome to the show our guest experts. First, we have Matt Katzer, founder of Camind IT, a company offering leading-edge technology solutions to small and medium-sized businesses. And we have Aaron Samanick, Senior IT Consultant at Phoenix Technology, a technical managed service provider in Vancouver, Washington. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to first start with Matt. I would love to learn a little bit more about your role, your company, and when did you decide you were going to go into this industry? Well, it's started for us. We've always been a managed service provider, providing IT services for our clients. And what happened with us, it started way back about 2010. We noticed that a trend with our customers or, you know, we had some customers that basically would totally strip out their offices or all laptop based and they're all basically wireless. And when you start looking how people were using, we're putting data, many data centers in across the country and you get right down to it. You could always do that in cloud computing. That's basically in Microsoft calls us the born, one in the born of cloud providers. So wow. we've been doing this since about March 2010. And when did you get excited? I mean, were you five? Were you 10? At what point did you say, oh, gosh, I, I really want to get into this industry? <laughs> well, I've always been involved in security. One of the businesses I worked for, the Fortune 100, I worked on the what we call the dark side. So I would fly back and forth to Fort Meade and have those type of discussions. So what happens is I've always been interesting in terms of the security side of it, the compliance side of it, and all sorts of things that happen, and you look through the years, and it's just very interesting. I think one of the stories that we had is that um, 
they used to call the in the early days they would say you can always tell the good guys from the bad guys because the bad guys all encrypt everything and the good guys send a clear text they would actually put vans out by the banks and modify transactions wow one comment before we go for people who are just coming on what is the dark side um, I call you know when you, when you look at the dark side I call those the you know the $500 toilet seats Okay. That, that costs 10 bucks <laughs> that the government charged. Well, that's all funds the, uh, the dark side, the different types of development efforts. Um, you do things like in Huntsville, Alabama, for instance, you go the, just like the spy movies, you go to these warehouses in the middle of the field with the dirt roads up to them and they're subterranean. Wow. <laughs> and that's just the way things are done. Excellent. Well, thank you. Well, I'm now going to ask Aaron the same thing. Tell us a little bit about your role right now and how you got involved. Sure. My role as an IT consultant for Phoenix Technology is we like to reach out to clients and well, they bring us in and they say, hey, we're having some trouble with these particular issues. Let's take a look around. So we dive in there. We look at their machines, their, their servers, their workstations, their people and how they operate. And then we try to implement efficiencies. That sounds interesting. And how did you get involved? What made you decide this is what I want to do as a career? Yeah. That all goes back many, many years when I was still pretty young, gaming on the computer, you know, <laughs> making that machine run those games, you had to modify files to optimize the performance of the computer. And then I, I, I got annoyed at my parents' VCR blinking 12, 12, 12 <laughs> all the time. So I got into a developing software. Um, I didn't like how um, data entry was so manual all the time, mm. you know, you sitting there typing over and over again. That's be a better way of doing that. So... I came up with some software, we developed it, and uh, that got me going. I love it. Yeah, I, I, I have a lot of kids who are into gaming right now in my house, so I appreciate that. Well, let's start with the basics. I'd love to get just an understanding on the history of cloud computing and how did it come about for people who are listening and maybe sort of want to get a, an understanding of what that really means. Well, Cloud computing is kind of interesting when you actually look at the history of it. As businesses go through and try to scale, they either build infrastructure into their facilities, infrastructure like buy servers, computers, and everything else, or they look for other reasons, and that's what's happened with cloud computing. And I think when you go back and you look when Google started doing some of the offerings of services, IT services were really expensive. Google brought a cost reduction to the environment. And then you have companies like Boeing trying to figure out how to actually do payroll one time a month when they actually need tons and tons of computing power, and they're trying to figure out ways to scale, which is look the same thing with Amazon. And that's really what drove the whole starting is basically trying to solve a business need. Got it, got it. And Aaron, if you had to sort of give just a simple definition of cloud computing, how would you describe it? Taking your on-premise resources and having them housed off-site somewhere in a co-location facility. Excellent. So let's talk about advantages and disadvantages, because I know I work with a lot of small businesses as part of my role, and often one of the questions that comes up is, is this safe? You know, can I trust? It's leaving my, <laughs> my computer, and where is it actually going? So, you know, maybe starting with Aaron, what do you believe are the advantages and are there any disadvantages if we're looking at cloud computing services? Yeah. An advantage of a cloud computing service, like what Matt said, is it's, you know, many companies pooling 
their need into a, a common resource. So you have the market of scale working for you. If you can't afford this massive computer individually, but you can as a company who's leasing time on it, that's an advantage of it. Um, also portability. If if you're a, a company who's loosely integrated and you have some people working in Oklahoma and Portland and different locations, then they can have a common res- a common location uh, to collect files or or information that they need for their job. Some of the disadvantages also are that same as the positives, the, um, the segmentation of, of uh, the employee from their data. Uh, if, if the employee is having a, an internet outage, maybe in, in their neighborhood or in their house or even on that half of the, of the continent, you know, which is unlikely but um, could happen, you know, then, that, then that worker is then off of their ability to do their job. Um, and also security is a concern. Um, when your resources are out there in the cloud, you know, having a common password between your Yahoo account and your Gmail and then going into your, your VPN or to your other type online resources is, is a concern. If one of those should be compromised, then the probability is there that the other ones could be as well. So keeping the user's um, passwords and passphrases uh, refreshed frequently is, is a good practice. Great. Uh, Matt, anything else to add? Yeah, when you look at cloud computing in general, one of the problems for bus- all businesses of any size, they have to scale and grow. And small businesses want to be able to basically have the same thing that big businesses do, what the Nikes, the Intels of the world want to have. And it's ironic because the Nikes and Intel worlds want to have everything the small business guys have. And so you have this really these oxymoron type of view. But what really cloud computing does, if you look at it, it basically drives a common price, a very flexible, a very standard predictable price across the scale. So you could be a one-person shop and have the same capabilities that a Nike or Intel does, and that spends maybe a 1000 bucks a month in IT services or something like that or security. And then you pick up all the security necessary to actually manage it, which you could never afford as a small business. So I think a lot of things that happen today, it's basically about how businesses can scale, and that's what drives cloud computing. And along with scale, it also means things like um, security and everything else because the security model you have to implement today is so complex and so expensive. A lot of businesses, you know, even a $100 million business can't afford to implement what you have to do today. And so you're looking for ways to scale the environment, and that's really the secret. It's scalability, and that's what's driving it. So, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about who is cloud computing's top competitor. So is it the people who are still using hard drive, or if they're not storing it on the cloud, what are they doing? And are you seeing an increase in more cloud computing or a decrease? So what would be the alternative? Kind of walk us through before cloud computing existed. What generally were people doing and using, and are they still using that today? Well, this is kind of for our, in case our business, we don't have a customer that is not in cloud computing. Mm. So we're 100% cloud-based for our entire our entire customer base. But if you look at what happened originally, a lot of customers would be, you know, they need to have email. They want to have their branding controlled by their domain so they have a servers on site then they build the necessary pieces and equipment on site to support the server and support the networking so they can actually communicate with folks. 
that's what really drives in computing. And so the decision that people have, or if you look for a competitor cloud computing, what it really comes down to business needs. At what point does a business want to scale differently? Mm. What point do they want to change? And then they make a decision to either go into the cloud and strip out their on-premise equipment, or they basically build out the on-premise equipment, given that the cost structure. And there's business reasons why you would have on-premise development versus cloud. A lot of those are compliance reasons, but leaving those are less and less an issue. Got it. Got it. So I know, Aaron, you mentioned something about risk when we were talking about advantages and disadvantages. Are there actual cybersecurity risks if we choose to go on the cloud? And, you know, what are some things we have to pay attention on? So if I choose to migrate everything through the cloud, am I opening myself up to potential risk? And what does that look like? Yes, you are. Oh, gosh. <laughs> You're supposed to say no, but... <laughs> no, everything is a risk, uh, as, but it's, it's a question of how do you mitigate the risk. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a billion-dollar question, and if we had it, we would, we would really be doing well. Um, but how do we? You know, this is an important dialogue, so I'm really open to thoughts because it's all about that trust, right? We're passing it on. We're trusting companies to, to, to protect it. How can we feel assured? Well, I think, of, you know, I listen to Aaron on a risk side. We have different point of views on it. I actually think if you go to cloud, your actually risk is considerably less mm -hmm. than being on-premise environment. But it really comes down to the level, you know, different services have different options and licenses. And the people that tend to do be not investing in the necessary um, basis of uh, subscriptions or pieces they have for their you know, for their company and everything else have a higher risk. Those that invest has a lower risk. And um, then it really comes down to business process. You know, things like if you do a wire, you have a, someone that actually physically does the wire. You don't do it electronically. How do you actually communicate financial information? What good password haps do you have? And, and probably the biggest one that people can easily do is just deploy multi-factor authentication. Mm -hmm. So I mean, we think about that. You no, know, people don't realize when you talk about security, security is really three things. It's something that you know, something that you have, and something that you are. So something you are, a biometric type feature, something that you have, like your cell phone, or something you know, a password. You do the combination of three, you have a very secured environment. You do one or two, you have less security. And that's kind of the basis of where you look at cloud computing. It's basically putting those type of things in place. Fair and, enough. Yeah. And you have to do that for on-premise equipment, too. Right. So can you sort of describe the kind of uh, people, entrepreneurs or companies that you've been working with? Are there certain industry clusters that you're noticing more and more that's all they're doing? Is it just all over the map? I mean, I'm particularly think, thinking of, obviously, I'm assuming medical, maybe construction, agriculture. But what about a, a business that, I don't know, sells on Etsy, for example, you know? I mean, because in the work we do, we're dealing with small businesses in all areas of business. So can you sort of walk through the demographics that you see in the type of clientele you work with? Yeah, we, we typically see companies that are maybe from 15 to 35, 40 users on them. Um, I mean, we kind of have our niche in, in that smaller business area. And like you said, you know, we um, see a lot of different areas that they work in. We have 
some construction, like you said, some medical wealth management. It's all across the board. And the move has been that that they do want to go towards uh, cloud-based computing and storage. They want to move their expenses to an operational expense. They, they don't want to have that large upfront capital that allows them to be able to offer their employees a service that otherwise would be out of their reach. Got it. Yeah. I think in our case, you know, we're all, um, all our customers are cloud-based. Um, the smallest customer we have is one, largest we do is about 6,000 users. Mm. They all want the same thing. They're all scalable. And I think the one trend that we see, it's all about scaling your business and you have to be able to scale to grow. Cloud computing, it's about risk management. You do reduce risk. You have planned expenditures. You know what your cost structure is. You can forecast it and build that into your business model. So when you look at a business that grows, I mean, we have customers in 27 states and 11 countries, and it really comes down to one thing. All our customers want to grow their business, and we want to help them grow. Yeah, I want to help them grow. (laughs) I just want to make sure they're protected. So, you know, when I think about this entire process, I'm curious to know, who do you believe is ultimately responsible for the cloud security? Is it the providers? Is it the customers? Or is there a combination of both? You know, I try to imagine scenarios where maybe there has been a compromise. Do they go back and say, well, did you do this, this, and this? And if you didn't, it's really not our responsibility. So curious to know where, where that goes from that perspective. Yeah, when you, the risk is really jointly, and this gets into is mostly the provider as well as you as the consumer. The thing that you actually look at as a consumer, whether you're a business, a large business, small business, you really have to pick your cloud provider. Predominantly, what we do is Microsoft, for instance. And so there's like 28 worldwide regions, and some of these data centers are like 400,000 square feet. I mean, things is huge. Data is redundant. Data is protected. And they have a requirement. They have their paramilitary force or the security force is probably looking a better way to look at it. That guides their, that guards their facilities and everything else. They have the rules and regulations associated with it. And they also have how to build the fundamental infrastructure to make sure that the data is secured and no one can come in and steal a drive or something like that. So they make sure as much physical security is in place. But then it gets right back down to the individual users. Users have a responsibility, too, to basically how they manage their business processes, how they manage their passwords, how they actually manage authentication, and how they control some of their internal process. If you have bad process, it doesn't matter if you're in the cloud or if you're actually on-premise, you have bad processes and you're going to be breached. I totally agree with Matt on this. Provider can give you a foundation which you can build upon and they can build the walls that you're going to be inside of, but unless the people who are using that system are not using it correctly, then it's not going to help with having the big walls because you can get in digitally. Got it. Yeah. Well, I have one last question before break, and I'm, I'm really curious to know this. So is cloud security, is it self-regulated by the providers or, you know, is there like an external oversight? So I think about here in, with our small business community, if there is an issue working with, let's say, a government agency and we have a problem with maybe licensing or permits, we can literally go to a small business ombudsman and you don't want to mess with her. Ruth Miles is amazing and she's dangerous. If you're listening, Ruth, she's smart. Is there sort of a 
a, a cloud computing ombudsman that we sort of could could go <laughs> and talk about concerns. So talk to me about the oversight. Well, I think you're going to see a lot of changes in the coming in the coming years. Right now, we have European customers, for instance, that we come under the requirements of the Global Data Protection Requirement Act in terms of how data is actually managed by the international entities. So if a cloud computing provider wants to be in the worldwide stage, there is so many regulations that you have to make sure and make privacy is guaranteed. You have to do certain things. And U.S. is a little bit behind in some of that aspect, and they're catching up. So, and, you, and the U.S. is a little bit different because every state you have data breach laws, and different states are more powerful than other states. But when you look at cloud computing, the infrastructure, there's requirements that we have to meet as a provider. And in the EU model, we're both an, we're an actor and a controller. So we have to provide different ways of actually manage the data and how we actually maintain it. And some of our clients are also government entities. And so we have to do the same thing for the government standards. So we apply them through everything. Got it. Aaron, any other thoughts on that? No. You're good. good. Well, great. With this understanding of cloud computing services in mind, we'll look at the specific pros and cons of putting faith in the cloud, especially in light of major cybersecurity threats after the break. Support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu slash sbdc. As the use of cloud computing spreads, so does accompanying cybersecurity risks. I'm Kedma O, oh, based at Mount Hood Community College, and I lead our statewide initiative for the SBDC on cybersecurity and I'm the host for Cybercast Oregon. And today, we have our heads in the clouds, talking about the specific cybersecurity threats that exist when we trust cloud services to keep our data safe. Rejoining us now to discuss major threats and current defense strategies is Matt Katzer, founder and CEO of Campmind IT, <laughs> and Aaron Semenek, senior IT consultant at Phoenix Technology. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. So I'd love to begin uh, just to talk a little bit more about the top threats that impact cloud security. What is happening as a trend? What are you noticing? What is it that they're not telling us right now <laughs> that you maybe know and we need to know? So I'm going to start with Aaron. Okay. <clears throat> We're seeing lots of examples of, of times when customers are opening up emails and uh, they are click happy for a better lack of a better phrase and they'll want to open up that invoice and they want to pay that customer. And so when they do that, you know, that just opens up the one way of getting some malware on their machine. We also see a lot of examples of uh, firewalls just trying to be uh, penetrated. If we look at the logs, we're noticing whether it's by country or just by some internal, internal being from the U.S. Uh, provider or person that these attempts are, are, are being logged and sometimes they do get through from what we've seen and implementing stops to make that no longer happen uh, is very gratifying. Thank you. 
Yeah, we see in terms of, like Aaron said, if you look in terms of breaches in general, about 99% of the breaches come from email. People will click on mm-hmm. a link or get a piece of some, a piece of malware, and they'll actually receive and click on and th- bad things happen. And there's the other aspect you'll see is there's been a study a couple of years ago where they actually took a, um, um, a um, you know, USB stick and threw it on the road, and they figured out how many people actually plugged in their PC, and I think the number was like 20%. Then they put like the uh, one of the suppliers of software in the market, they put their name on the USB stick, and it was 65%. And so those the other way that things happen through like you know people adding things to their PC or their Macs and everything else, but it's really when you look at for us we're in the on the cloud side, we do a lot of things to mitigate the mitigate these things either the way we pre-process emails going to the clients security software that we put on the PC, and some of this comes back from my background because when we look at a device, whether a phone or a PC, we consider that's the communication security boundary. And we can make sure that boundary of that device is secure. So it's a trusted entity. And then you can actually do mitigation from that standpoint. But really, you have to teach people. And keep in mind, you have things like Equifax, whose mission statement is uh, empowering the world through uh, knowledge. All 145 million of us, it has been all our social security credits and everything else exposed. There is nothing really sacred. They know who you are. They know your information. They know all everything about you. And they will actually conduct a very focused campaign, just like we would do any other marketing campaign through LinkedIn or anything else. And they will make it very appetizing. Go click on these things. And we as providers have to actually build the defenses and train our users not to do those dumb things. And we all do. Right. Even me. <laughs> you know, and, and I hate to call out... E- Equifax, but you brought it up, so I can now speak on it. Uh, what I'm curious to know, though, is there was a breach, and I, me as a consumer, it's not like I got some reimbursement check for that breach. I didn't get, you know, a cup of coffee from Starbucks. I didn't get anything to sort of. I didn't even get a sorry letter, but maybe I, maybe went to my spam. What is the accountability of that? And uh, is it just like, oh well, sorry? This is what happened. Well, you know, this is the whole thing. Different countries have different... We don't really have a good national law to deal with this. In the case of this was actually... in the, There's a new law in the EU that's coming in place after May 28th, I believe. If that's hit, Equifax probably be writing something like a $100 to $200 million check. And basically, there's things like that. And those are the things that come back in the States. But you have to keep in mind is these breaches and data breaches and everything else... The whole what we call the dark web is one massive money machine. So if you want to actually come up with a new way to actually penetrate a user, you go find the company that can basically run your passwords against this particular user, against this database, and go against 100 million accounts. Or if you go through and look at the different combinations. So it's no longer you can think of anything. You have a password sacred. You have to actually do other things. And if you don't do it, you're going to get breached. It's just a matter when. I feel really comfortable right now. Not. <laughs> it's, Aaron, do you have any thoughts? Like Matt said, it's a lot of user education. That's yeah. what we like to teach our, our yes. user base is um, even though that, that email looks really funny, you know, you don't have to click on it to follow it through. Or if you have a question about, is this content legitimate, ask your provider or ask someone who, who would know whether or not that's, that's legit. And just keep teaching those users that um, 
you know, you are being a defense for your company. And if, if you take it lightly, then, then there could be problems. Well, actually, and that brings up a good point, Aaron. So if you were consulting right now a small company on defending themselves as a, as a company around system vulnerabilities or technology vulnerabilities, aside from making sure they upgrade their systems and make sure they do their patch, is there anything else you would suggest to defend themselves from that environment? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we like to um, ask them, who do you have for your smart host? Who do you use as a mail filter for incoming and outgoing mail? Do you have a, a safeguard in place to block mail coming into your company before it even gets to your company? And then if it does get through your company, do you have another layer of defense? Uh, do you have another security device that you rely upon? Are those activated? Are they current? Are they paid for? And is someone monitoring any kind of logs within your organization? Do you have a system that alerts somebody when there is something abnormal going on? All these, all these layers are nice safeguards and, uh, and keep teaching the user, be careful. Excellent. Yeah. Well, in our case, you know, all our users are an Office 365, and that's our primary solution that we provide for all our community for, you know, the 70,000 people that we have licenses for. If what really comes down to, it's the license mix that people have and how you secure it. We don't have a lot of, um, there's very little on-premise equipment that we actually manage. A lot of it's actually moved to the Microsoft Cloud and then what we do is we wrap the different security models around it to basically do the threat detection, monitor what's going on in the systems, monitor what's going on in the servers, monitoring the logs. And what's happening today, and this is the different, the traditional things that people think about antivirus, they just don't work. What's going on today is it's all behavior, it's all AI driven. So the type of solutions we actually deploy in all our customers are all AI based. So we actually look, you know, if you run like Word, Word should do what Word does. Word shouldn't go execute commands that go data mine through the uh, HR files. You know, you look at way users work, and you start developing a behavior mechanism. And that's how you actually prevent the next generation breaches. Yeah, you have to make sure email scanned, and those things are taken care of, which we do that as nature of our solutions. But you have to go a step further. And if you don't, you're going to be breached because the things that you traditionally have done no longer work. Hmm. So I'm going to go back. Thank you. That was that was excellent. I'm going to go back to Aaron um, because I'm I'm so focused on this education piece. I think it's critical, and I see this with our own uh, small business community that there's just not enough education. You know, it's just not a priority. They look at other things before they would consider this. How do you deal with? the dialogue around virtual versus physical threats. And in particular, I'll give you an example. I was recently working with a head of an IT of a very large organization, and they did a physical audit. Literally, they went in the evening and they sort of went through different divisions. But here's what happened. They uncovered what they call the post-it nightmare. You cannot imagine how many post-its yeah. they collected with passwords, I mean, sensitive data, and they were able to log in. And, you know, obviously this is a, a major threat. And we're talking about a heavily secured kind of organization. This is not, no offense, but it's not a flower shop or something like that. There's just very sensitive data there. So 
walk us through an example of, you know, are there opportunities where you have to have that conversation through education of, you know, managing the physical environment? Absolutely. It's, it's all too common when we walk into a company and, and we see an employee logging into a machine who's not that same username as what they, as what they are. They're using an employee who was terminated three years ago. And, and also that, that speaks into their Wi-Fi as well. You know, they're using the same Wi-Fi SID and password that they've used since they opened up in 2003. And they've had overturn. You know, it, it's, it's because it was set up one day and it worked well. It doesn't carry over across the decades. There needs to be some um, upkeep and management of just the security protocols. Like, what do you do when you have an employee terminated? Well, you have to go through steps A, B, and C. And don't forget about step Z. You know, um, you have to do everything um, by the book, if you will. If you have your, you know, your policy in place, you got to follow it. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> Wi-Fi is is also one that that we see. Like I mentioned before, high toner, high turnover companies, and the former employees can be out in the parking lot for all we know using that same credential. Um, they're not using the enterprise class of a Wi-Fi setup for whatever reason. And it's, it's the same thing as plugging your machine or a machine into your corporate network. Yeah, they have, at that point, you're going to be limited by what the credentials that that person knows about, how far they can get into the, into the company. Um, so I know it's really, it's a pain in the butt to always have to keep your credentials unique and to yourself because so once in a while, you know, Susan's out sick one day, but you got to have Bob check her email or do something on her behalf. And you know, you got to take security seriously. It's a good point. Yeah, I mean, what Aaron said is really right. You have to take, you know, security seriously. And you have to do a lot of education. We have a lot of online training. We provide users and everything else. We do seminars about users. But it really comes down to the business has to be able to willing to put in place the necessary business processes. The real way to defend everything against a lot of the hacks and a lot of the issues you run to you have to implement multi-factor authentication on everything you have. And basically so that it gets to the point that those yellow sticky notes no longer really matter because if you're caught with something that you have, like your smartphone or something that you know, a combination you know, those two things, you basically has mitigated a risk significantly to the point that you can reduce the penetration of your company probably about 91%. But you, when you look at this stuff, you have to change the business process. A lot of things that we do with companies, we don't really sell IT. We talk about business processes and how do you actually grow your business and what we can do to help you grow to the next level. And that's what you do when you talk about security. It's just part of the conversation. And if you're not having that with now with your current provider, you really should have it because it's no longer a game. It's no longer, it's nice to have. You have to do these things because you have no choice. And actually, you nailed it. Uh, this particular organization at this point doesn't have two-step authentication. So, of course, there's a lot of potential liability involved, but that's an excellent point. So I'm going to throw this to Matt. So I am a client of yours, and I, I don't know what working hours you are, but let's say I call you at 6 in the morning and I tell <laughs> you, <laughs> we have just been hijacked. I want you to tell me what you would tell me as a client. What do I need to do? So maybe our information's been hijacked. Maybe we've received information on that. Would you refer me somewhere else or would you walk me through some kind of plan? Well, 
In our case, we have a lot of different plans. So if you've actually called us, we have a set of process and protocols that we actually go through. Because we're all on 365 in our environment, we basically totally lock down the environment. We have the ability, we pull the logs for the environment. We can actually do the forensic analysis of what's gone on. We even have the ability to go through if we know like the systems that if you're on our security program, we probably would have already known about the breach and we already have would have mitigated it. And it's just, it's more of trying to collect the information. In some ways, it's what's really bad sometimes if you call us, we're not really doing our job because we should be calling you to say that <laughs> this is true. what's happened. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you're, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the, the, the horse has already left the barn and you shut the door. Right. <laughs> and it's the same thing. But security now is it's a proactive type thing. And everything that we provide, like ourselves, it's much more proactive management. We're more about security consulting and IT services in that bundle, not so much of a managed service provider. I mean, we do all the managed services that's given, but it's all about prevention. It's all about trying to make sure your information's safe because information in a business is your asset. And that asset is probably more valuable than what your physical facility is and everything else. And that's just the way things are changing. You have to mentally look at your asset and how to protect it. It's a virtual asset and it can be sold and somebody wants to steal it. Absolutely. Aaron, would you add anything to that to that protocol, or do you do anything different? Not overall, but I'd, I would like to say that um, also figuring out where it came from. What is yes. the source, um, either internally or externally? How was that breach made? And are you, are, are you, either of you as companies obligated, if it is a major compromise, to contact the FBI, to notify them of situations like that, or is that not a, a, a mandate or responsibility? I think in our case, it really depends the customer and what the requirements are. We have customers that are DOD contractors. We have different requirements for them. We all come under the breach laws. So if a data breach happens under watch as an IT provider, there's in Oregon, we're supposed to, I think it's 250 users, but we have different states and we have to be aware of different states and what the re- rationale is. So it depends what we conduct business in, but a lot of times this comes down to what does a business want to do? What does a business not want to do? We'll assist them to get in touch with the FBI and the right people, but it really is down to they have to make a business decision. Got it. Tread on. So this next question, I'm going to just preface for the audience. This is not to be tried at home. Whatever answers come from this, this is just for education. So I'm going to do this one to Aaron. If you were going to train me to be a cyber criminal and try to access a cloud system, what would be your first suggestion? To train you. I would go on the the dark web, as they call it, locate some malware that's going to do that for me. And I would just give you a USB stick with that software on it and have you put it into one of your machines, either at your house or in the office here, wherever you want to penetrate. And then you just put it in there in the machine for a few minutes and then you go back to your job and you take it back out and by then it'll be taken care of. Wow. I would actually, I would actually <laughs> add to that. I would actually play the game that the Iranians did to one of the cybersecurity firms where they actually conducted a... Uh, face, they, they basically data mine the key contacts in the firm they want to go after. This is a multinational firm. And then what they did is they basically developed custom Facebook profile pages 
that would mirror that person and they develop a relationship with a fake personality so they can actually go through and develop the relationship with them. And they doing that and they were able to get and breach the environment because of that. So it's basically, there's a lot of things. I would start with something like that. There's second things is saying, once you breach and then you have the confidence, then you actually go the further. Okay, what do you get inside the organization? And then once you're in the organization, like a lot of way that data breaches happen in an organization, there's two ways you point to, uh, you go point into an organization, and then you try to do what we call lateral moves across the entire organization. So you find out who the users are, who the CEO, who the CFO, and you get that information. And that's how, that's how a lot of the breaches are done. Yeah, and really my point was is that you're both good actors doing the right thing, but it's always to pay attention to how they're figuring it out. You know, what systems are they trying to do so you can continue to protect? So, you know, along that line, when we think about all the data going into the cloud and these public cloud services in particular, are we noticing a natural increase in bad actors going after cloud-based services? Are you seeing that as, or is it pretty much sustained? And looking from our environment, what I see, the people that are basically targeted are the people that haven't deployed multi-factor authentication. Because once they deploy it, then they're basically, they're, multi-factor authentication is like that alarm sign you have on your front of your driveway in front of your house or you leave your light at night. So if you have a bad actor driving down the street, are you going to go after the house with the alarm sign on it or the, with the light bulb or are you going to go after the one that basically has the lights off? And that's kind of what it is. And when you look at trying to mitigate things, and that's really what you want to do. And so we look at the accounts that we actually manage, put the security software on the system to prevent like the ransomware things like that happening. And we have backups to make sure that if stuff is breached, we can restore it. But it really comes down is you want to put prevention in place and you want to mitigate problems. And you make it look like you're there, go, go after the other person that basically is not as secured or locked down as you. And they will because it's a business. It's like the telemarketing call. I mean, if you ever had a telemarketer call you up and there's two ways you hand it, they bear, basically are paid on the trying to get you to transact. So if you want to really mess up their numbers, you get them on the phone, you talk to them about 15, 20 minutes so they can't make those other dialing for dollar calls. And you basically are mad at you at the end. It's the same thing with a breach or trying to, you try to basically make it so that you're more expensive to deal with you so they go somewhere else. You know that, Matt, that's such a good point because I used to train telemarketers a <laughs> hundred a month and I'm very, very familiar with telemarketers because I was one of their trainers. But to your point, it's really about protecting and making sure. Because you both mentioned multi-factor authentication, I do want to wrap up this part and just for the audience who's questioning this, is there a, a website, a resource, a way for them to do it on their own, or they, do they have to work with an organization or a firm like, like your team? For us, in that on the Microsoft 365 side, it's just really a license option. And so uh, end users, I publish a couple books in Office 365. We discuss it. It's easy to implement it. It's just really deciding that the, you want this level of security, you buy the add-on license. And then you can go through and configure it all yourself. There's information online. We also provide information a lot to our customers and can do it all themselves. But it's a lot of this stuff nowadays, it's very user-driven. It's sort of like, you know, password resets, setting up tiny your phones. 
I mean, even if you go through and look like uh, setting up like a new Android device, you know, what, and you have a new Google account, they want to throw multi-factor authentication into it. You do like your iPhone the same way. And if you do like anything, any company right now that you're going into the, the cloud services dealing with it, they want to know who you are. They want to know basically tied to who you are because that protects them as well as you. And that's the way the world is right now. We still have customers who um, request that we turn off phone security mm. because uh, they usually get annoyed with having to enter their password each time. And wow. uh, I can see their position. I could see that, you know, sure, it, it's an annoyance, but it takes two seconds to enter a four-digit PIN or a, or a thumbprint on your device. Uh, just use that security. You're protecting yourself and your company. It, it, it's much more important than, than your annoyance factor. Excellent. Well, the issues of cybersecurity are a shared responsibility, especially when it comes to cloud services. On our next segment, we'll talk prevention, predictions, and how to find a cloud service that fits your cybersecurity needs when we come back. Support for Cybercast Oregon comes from Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center, working with entrepreneurs to create, grow, and protect successful businesses. Learn more at mhcc.edu slash sbdc. I'm Kedma O, your host on Cybercast Oregon, and I'm with Mount Hood Community College and the SBDC. Today, we're making sense of cloud computing and how it fits into the cybersecurity debate. We're closing out this episode with practical advice for those wanting to make the leap to cloud services and what pros and cons to take into consideration when shopping around. With us now to talk smart strategies, Matt Katzer, founder and CEO of Camond IT, and Aaron Semenik, senior IT consultant at Phoenix Technology. Thank you for coming back. Well, thank you. I always get nervous that people want to leave halfway through, so I appreciate it. <laughs> so let's let's continue. This is just um, so inviting, so many questions that have been coming up. The first thing that I really want to sort of dive into is I am really curious your opinion on the various cloud services that are out there because they're not all the same. So which companies, I know a lot, has been discussed around Microsoft, that's one. But which companies, if you had to do a real strong evaluation or a SWOT, you would look at the strength and the weaknesses of each one from a security perspective. And and I'll fully disclose, I use um, Carbonite. I believe they are one of the cloud services. So could you just sort of walk through, if you had to do an analysis, which ones would you recommend and why? Starting with Aaron. Sure. Uh, it's what fits for your personal or your corporate need. Oftentimes, it's based upon price. Find that, like for a backup solution, you're you know, you're going to be charged on a per gigabyte scale of some sort. So you want to find something that grows with you and scales well for your personal use or for your business. And the same thing falls through for online documents, like through the Office 365 program. And can I ask personally which one you use? Yeah, sure. <laughs> for our company, we use, we have an in-house branded application uh, for, you know, 
It's called ASE, OBS. Mm -hmm. And that allows us to have our own data center downtown Portland here where we keep all of our information and our clients' information. And then we also have a backup location as well. For the online documents, we, you know, we're part of the Microsoft family on that too. Got it. Thank you. Well, I think in, when you actually look at providers and whatever solution, backup solution, everything else, you have to actually go through and say, okay, where's the data stored? What type of data centers are they put in? You run in situations like in Houston when you had the flood, for instance, there's a small local regional center that basically had their data center down there, and then they re had it rotated out, out just into another area that also got hit. So it's really trying to figure out how you do geolocation, um, mostly everything else. I mean, everything we do is we don't host any servers. We don't own any servers. Everything we have is in Microsoft Cloud and Azure. We have servers in Azure. We have geo-redundant data, so our customers' data is actually replicated between different data centers. So we don't have to worry if uh, a data center goes down or something happens in Portland, we get the earthquake and everything else. Our customers are online. The backup solutions and things we do are the same way. We basically spread them across a couple different data centers and make sure that basically data is taken care of. Because in our mind, data is the asset. And we're not in the business. We can't do, I mean, we're a, in terms of trying to host a solution and everything else, I mean, we basically put solutions in Azure, which is the Microsoft Cloud, or AWS, we have some applications there. But it's really trying to figure out what we can do and how do we actually manage. So we manage it as a cloud provider. And we really don't have, we don't have servers. Wow. I mean, we just don't have servers. I got one of my garage, my bench. <laughs> it's been there for two, three years now. So I'm going to go back to Aaron because you mentioned something that I want to key in on. You mentioned it really comes down to price and then obviously would be size of whatever information you have. So two questions, one related. One is if price is the factor, is the quality equal or am I getting like, oh, well, I have enough money, so I'm going to get uh, the cloud service that's considered a rating of an A versus, oh, you know, I really don't have that much, so we're going to go for a rating of a C. So is it equal? And then give me an idea of uh, the variance of pricing. So I'm thinking about maybe a small business, 10 employees, you know, is there a way to sort of give a range versus, you know, a major business and, and their work? So two things, quality and price. Okay, for quality. Um, a lot of that, well, it, if we were going to advise you as a, as a customer, we would look at what are your expectations? What are your needs for a restore? Uh, can you wait a day for a drive to be delivered to you? Can you wait three days? Or can you have to be there the next day or the same day? So what's important to you for recovery? The online solutions are fantastic. You know, the, they're geographically dispersed. They're, they're pretty safe. Um, but if you're restoring a server... That's, I don't know how many gigs in size. Do you have the bandwidth to download that data quickly? Or do you have another way where you can also offset it with a, a locally stored backup solution as well? That comes down to reading the information provided by the supplier, you know, the backup service. They usually post all that information to, um, on their website that you can read about it or, or talk to your provider, you know, your, your information provider about uh, what do they recommend. And then give me the second part of the question It's again. just the pricing. What pricing. price am I looking at? So if I'm a you know, fairly small business, maybe even 50 employees or less, you know, what's the investment look like? Yeah, that also deals with 
<laughs> if it were lost, how can you survive without it? And are you willing to have that information online? So to answer that question, people always say, I want everything backed up. Well, when we dig deeper into that, um, do you want your iTunes backed up? Do you want your photo of your bar mitzvah backed up? You know, things yes. on machines <laughs> that people have over the years that just accumulate and, and take up space. Uh, so if, if, you're, if your plan is, let's just throw a number out there, um, 25 cents per gigabyte per month, you know, and you're backing up these, these non-business data, do you need to have that? Uh, yes or no? And, and if you need to have all the other stuff part of your plan, then just price around and find one that fits your, your quality and your pricing needs for your company. Got it. You look at different solutions. I mean, when you talk about backup in general, backup is really the backup cloud storage, like in the storage farms we use in Microsoft, it's like $20 a terabyte a month is what the cost is. And that's geo-redundant storage in multiple data centers and everything else. So the storage mechanisms there, then it comes down from a client, what's the needs on the client? And we deploy different types of backup solutions, one to get readily file access, one to do long-term restore. But a lot of times what happens now, when you look at people trying to restore equipment and everything else, they have like the basic PCs are usually a throwaway, and it's really just the data they're after. Because a lot of times if you're, like in our environments, our environments are all Windows 10, for instance. We don't have any non-Windows 10 environments because you can't really maintain them and they're not secured anymore. And so you have an environment that's very consistent, easy to manage, easy to restore, and easier to handle. The cloud services, or we actually put our servers, are all in the cloud storage. They're easy to basically restore online. And that's the way we handle all our things because we really don't have any on-premise equipment anymore. And so you end up with a situation that you, as a business, you have to really sit down and have the discussion. What do you want to do and how do you want to manage? So the cost of managing a business for like a, you know, a 20-user company, or her, it really comes down to which licenses make sense for your business, what's the cost of the PC hardware that you're using or the Mac hardware. And then you look at the server infrastructure, you start saying that, okay, how are you doing your applications? How are you managing your applications? Do you use a tool that sync files and use that as a mechanism to share files between people? Do you put it into, you know, the Microsoft Cloud, things like that? Because people don't realize that even with a, a, a small user can have up to a terabyte of cloud storage just with a, like a $5 a month subscription. That's how low cost this stuff is. So you have to think differently about how you want to do things. Excellent point. So I want to uh, throw out just real life situation and, and I'm curious if it's occurred in any of the advising you've done and or if it's something that you actually speak about. So what I'm hearing more and more is, is, is there's really a strong security within the business environment. And yet these days, a lot of people are logging in from out of, out of the business. They're logging from home. Their home may not be as secure as their business. I just did a presentation to some technical providers that were so proud so proud to share all the technology and protection their company had. But my question to them is, how secure is your home environment? How secure is your phone? And there was this, this blank statement of, how am I going to answer that? So is there a, how, how do you deal with companies that have employees checking in, but they're not, you know, they're not 
physically there? Is there a compromise if they're working out of the home and logging in? And is that something you have to train on in terms of virtual kind of check-ins on, on some of the resources within the company? So, Sure. Yeah, we're seeing more and more of these also within our industry where it's a, a BYD, bring you on device uh, to work, and it leaves with them in the evening when they go home as well. Uh, they'll bring in a, like an iPad or, you know, some device that they want to say they're counseling. And so they, they take notes on their iPad device and they log all their information on their their website that they subscribe to. But then they go home, they hop on their, their home network and they watch Netflix on the same device. And that's okay, you know. But then it brings in the question, well, how secure is your home connection? Correct. Um, are you susceptible still to that flaw that was detected a few months ago where the wireless the crack problem, just because your, your business is secure, you know, you have uh, safeguards in place there. Uh, how do you do it at your house? And, and people just need to realize that it's still, it still is an entry point for the criminally people who want to get into your, your domain and, and capture information and you're the, the weak chain link. Exactly. Well, it's, this again comes down to the cloud service provider. We deploy something called mobile device management, mobile application management. So if you be a BYD, you bring your own device, we basically install encrypted partition on the person's smartphone that you can't copy things from the Gmail side or the Apple side and back and forth. And if the device gets uh, basically compromised or stolen, we basically wipe the partition. And the same thing with PCs. You can have a traveling laptop that's basically joined into the Microsoft cloud. And when you have an environment like that, you actually encrypt the entire thing. So basically, if the device is stolen, it's basically, you know, it's, it's basically locked down. And so those are the things you have to look at it from a business. And there's, there's a trade-off. What is the expense that you want to take advantage of? What's your strategy? And how do you protect that fundamental asset, which is your data? Now, you're going to have always, you're going to have bad actors that will take pictures of screens or things like that, or you can also do things, you can block things, a lot of stuff you can take care of when you control the security of the device. And earlier I talked about this, what we call the communication security boundary, the ComSec boundary. If you define that, that makes sense for the business, you can actually secure the data. I mean, our assumption is people work, our users work worldwide. Mm-hmm. We have people to travel Africa. We have everyone everywhere. We have, it doesn't really matter where you are. And we have to secure those devices worldwide. And you have to pick the right solutions to actually do it. Wow. And there's business trade-offs you make. Right. Right. Excellent. Well, I want to wrap up with one last question. I'm, I'm, you know, more and more we're listening to threats occurring. It's almost daily. I almost hear, okay, well, there's another compromise. There's another threat. And it's kind of scary to the point that, you know, it's, it, we've almost become, you know, immune to it. It's happening so often. So what about specific threats that have hit in 2018, like Spectra and Meltdown? When these threats happen, how do they interface with the cloud security? What role do they play? And then when do you come in? How do you get involved again? Because you're at the you're in the proactive part. You're in making sure that I don't have to call you, <laughs> that you know exactly what's going on. So when do you get alerted? Well, in the case, it really comes down to what the you know, you know, as a provider, what's the security strategy you deploy, and how do you actually deploy the different types of security model. 
So the solutions that we use were very proactive so that when we actually see a, let's say a threat gets hit in Europe, by the time it actually, we see it in threat, the, the solution has already been resolved and pushed out to all our customers. Or if it hits, it doesn't matter. So it hits once, but not twice. And that's the type of things they have to do. This is a new AI generation of a threat detection and analysis, and you have to be down that route. And there's going to be an interesting fallout this year because there's going to be vendors that are going to be able to do it. And vendors, traditional vendors do that in the antivirus and the malware detection. There are going to be those that can and those that can't. Because the, the environment has changed so much. It's so vicious. I think with Equifax, there's no more private information. Everything's been compromised. And it's a business that is basically targeting to basically steal your information or get information from you so they can go target somebody else to convince them that they're, they're you and basically make, make you do dumb things. And we all do dumb things. Like I click on that Amazon free <laughs> gift card every now and then. <laughs> uh, Aaron? Yeah, when we're dealing with Spectra and, and Meltdown, that's kind of a foundation rocker, you know, because we're, we're working with hardware that was 20 years developed ago, you know, and, and even modern day stuff. And the attacks that, that can come from this flaw, they're downright nasty. And the developers of the software and the hardware that are trying to stop this from happening, you know, you have to stay on, on track with those. Uh, you know, reading the, the journals, the online posts, the blogs, the information put out by the companies who are affected by it is, is critical. Make sure that your, your patches are being implemented from those providers and staying on top of it. Fantastic. Well, that's all we have for today on Cybercast Oregon. Thank you to both of you, Aaron and Matt. This was really educational. If you missed any part of the episode or want to listen again, you can find us on prp.fm and iTunes under Cybercast Oregon. We'll be back next month with an episode on the hacker's mind and how cybercrime fighters try to outsmart them. In the meantime, stay in touch on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cybercast Oregon is produced by Nastasia Boisen and hosted by Kedma O. Tech support by Austin Hill. Editing and music by Alastair Lee. This episode is made possible by Mount Hood Community College Small Business Development Center. Explore their workshops, online courses, and more at mhcc.edu sbdc. Our show is produced in the studios of Portland Radio Project. Check out prp.fm for more information. You can find previous episodes, extra content, and previews by following us. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cybercast Oregon. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.